0: Anyway, I'll, I'll just read the thing. So, Dr. Freya Jarman is a reader in music. Is that right, Freya? Yes, yeah, like apparently. Mm. Allegedly. That's good, everybody. A reader in music at the University of Liverpool and her PhD student, Emily Baker, exploded in our world at the Lincoln Conference although we had loved them since their brilliant abstract came in. Lincoln was the first time that we had tried the blended peer review scheme with double blind, anonymized peer review processes from listeners as well as the programming committee. This was a rather fun innovation which I manage. The close attention paid to the four pieces of music playing in the background of the infamous night that Helen snapped and stabbed her gaslighting husband, Rob Titchener, shows some of the multi-layering in the production of The Archers. Emily did extensive research with the writer Tim Stimpson. I think he thought you were stalking him, didn't he, uh, Emily? Definitely. In order to obtain insights into the creative process. This paper was awarded the inaugural award for audience participation, as it was Dr. Jarman who began our relationship with Dumpty Dum through the singing of the theme tune into Speakpipe Speak Pipe on the Day. The chapter can be found in our second book, Custard Culverts and Cake, Academics on Life in the Archers, still available in all good bookshops. So excited were our musicologists about the music in Ambridge, they set up the brilliant Ambridge FM. Now I'd like to say that is exactly the sort of time thief that we embraced when we were supposed to be writing the damn thesis too, Emily. (laughs) We also went out drinking gin afterwards, if memory serves. The Helen and Rob's section of Custard emerged from the panel at Lincoln, which was a feminist triumph and the thing which finally stopped me having such anxiety about the whole storyline. Over to you Freya and Emily.
1: Hello, right, so question number one, can everybody hear me okay? Do I need to pay attention to volume at all?
2: You're yeah, all right, gentlemen
1: we're all right okay great um so i'm going to share computer sound i think i've got everything in order um right and everybody should be able to see the powerpoints now okay everybody good yes great okay so i'll kick off um as iconic as barwick green may be once we're in ambridge proper music plays far more subtle a role occasionally a specific track will appear in the narrative world that reveals another layer of meaning to a knowing listener Bessie Smith's yearning that nobody knows you when you're down and out functioned as yet another eye roll at Shula when she complained that her sandwiches were less popular than Fallon's peri peri Chicken. <laughs> or Eddie Grundy's ringtone joyfully blares the Wurzels' I am a cider drinker. And there are many, many more. If music is used in The arches at all, it tends to be a sparing scene-setting device to locate the listener in a particular space. And so it's interesting that when Rob Titchener came home to that fateful dinner on the evening of April the 3rd, he set up a playlist that occupied 11 minutes um, uh, occupied 11 minutes of less than 14 minutes on air. A comparison of the roles of music in radio drama and in audiovisual media like for, uh, film or television is too complex to investigate here, although, sidebar, um, a colleague of mine is actually publishing... Um, an article on music in the Sherlock Holmes uh, radio dr- BBC radio dramas uh, quite shortly, so it's 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 coming kind of up and coming uh, area. Uh, but there are certainly relevant models to be drawn from film music scholarship. The title of Claudia Gordman's book, for instance, is uh, is of course to observe how music undertakes its emotional work in relation to this general unheardness. And this is indeed relevant to the episode under question. And so we're going to attempt to decipher the meaning in that moment in Blossom Hill Cottage by undertaking a close investigation of the four tracks in that episode. We do so by exploring how music communicates both between the Tichners within the narrative confines of Ambridge and for them to the listener in the outside world. Baker, over to you. Baker?
2: Hello. Okay. <laughs> The first Good, song, <clears throat> before the first song, can you hear me? Yep. Before the first song, uh, Helen has already set a dangerous game in play by her choice of meal, and Rob cautiously plays along. So when Rob sets the frame for the playlist to start and decides that the eagles Lion and an island... And uh,
0: whatever's in the oven smells delicious. Really? <laughs> Tuna bake. We, we haven't had much in the cupboards. Um, that not was the house. clip.
1: Did you hear it? hope you like it.
0: Oh, why wouldn't I?
1: Yeah, okay, fine.
2: Go. When Rob sets the frame uh, for the play to start and decides that the eagle's lion eyes is perfect... Yep. There we go. Uh, the song's refrain functions as a clear lyrical marker of the message he intends Helen to hear. This is musically reiterated by the song's adherence to the conventions of the male-centred middle-of-the-road rock, um, the codes here signify uncritical, specifically American whiteness and masculinity. Lion Eyes therefore signifies a subject position to which Rob has access and to which Helen finds herself subservient, and Rob wields this power to his own end in selecting it. The complex transaction of power between the two continues as each tries to gauge how much the other knows about the, uh, their various deceptions. So when Rob discovers Helen's bag and Helen tries to cover her tracks, the song gently reminds the listener of the manipulation, even though Rob is momentarily tripped up. The melody covers over the tension here in a way that the tuna bake conversation did not enjoy, but it also pokes out from the background, reminding the listener not only of the lie, but of Rob's underlying desire to see through it. Go for it, Jarman. Hold on, sorry. Explain
0: that.
2: Explain that.
0: um, It's my hospital bag. I thought I'd start to get it ready. Your hospital bag? You're you're not due for weeks yet. I know, but I had Henry at 30 weeks. It's
2: better to be organised. That's all I was doing, honestly.
0: Well, how was I meant to know, eh?
2: Eventually, it seems to remind Rob too. When Helen asks if he'll still have the shower that he had gone for his refusal coincides with a musical signal of a move from verse to chorus as if he realises his attention has been cleverly drawn elsewhere, but he is awake to what he perceives as Helen's manipulation of him. Lush vocal harmonies become more prominent here too, an iconic stamp of 70s rock that serves to frame Rob's regaining of power. That will keep warm. Hold on, it does. I promise. Misbehaving, Charming. No, 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 I'll, uh, I'll have a shower now. Let's have supper now.
1: Okay so we rejoin the couple over dinner and uh, with plenty of space to hear multiple layers of sound amy winehouse's you know i am No good gentle tinkering in the kitchen and rob's chiding of helen his manipulation of helen is grossly embodied through his chomping speaking through full mouth a merciless reminder of her anorexia
0: i well, tuck in. You know how much your parents worry. What am I going to tell them if you're not eating? Hmm? Don't you, you cause them all that trouble like last time? All right. Well.
1: In this section, the voice of If the you're not hungry, I'll oh, it. To but it is musically marked by the ratcheting up of Rob's manipulation of Helen. In the first instance, as he forces her to show her tuna bake covered hand. There is a lightness in his voice, which weaves in and out of Winehouse's and Helen's in pitch. Further still, his rhythm is emphasised by the drum pattern, but in the face of his increased gaslighting, a timely snare fill mimics Helen's stuttering as she tries to defend her own sanity.
0: Sorry, I couldn't hear you. I said you know why. You told me you didn't like tuna. <laughs> did I ever say that? Ages ago, I tried to cook you a special meal. You knew what we were having, but then you said you couldn't eat it. No, you imagined it. I didn't. You must have done, darling. I love tuna. You have been getting confused lately. No. I understand. No, no, don't do that.
1: She is soon left silent in the face of Rob's challenge, which is fortuitously underpinned in content by Winehouse's regret-saturated lyrics.
0: What started? Come on. Oh, you said you wanted to talk? Have you got something you want to say to me? Hmm? No? Oh, okay then. Uh, now.
1: Helen plays what she believes to be the trump card of having met with Jess, as the middle eight of the song sounds. Devoid of lyrics, and with a lack of clear harmonic direction, it is poised to land anywhere.
0: Nonsense. It's not nonsense, I know it's not. Oh you do, do you? Yes!
1: Oh, sorry. Hmm?
0: The one who's seeing a shrink. I do know because Jess told me. I saw her last week. You did what? When? We met up in Culpersham.
1: Lyrical references to crying on the kitchen floor, guts churning and incredibly, who stuck the knife in first can be read retrospectively as a darkly humorous foreshadowing of the climactic events. Hearing Amy Winehouse as the inner voice of Helen, we might view the song as representing her remaining insecurities about being no good or causing the trouble that Rob tells her over dinner that she did. Yet we might equally argue that the lyrics foreshadow Rob's observation during this scene, insofar as Helen cheated herself by ignoring what she knew about Rob's being no good. In the end, we surely have to presume that the music remains Rob's choice, and we might therefore hear it still as speaking on his behalf more than hers. His gaslighting, most prominent during this scene, has led her to become complicit in her own abuse, and this song underlines that complexity.
2: So as Winehouse's voice fades, processed through vocal delays, the resounding echoes of Rob's psychological abuse are felt in a momentary gap between this and the third song, Corin Bailey's Ray's Is This Love, which speaks on behalf of both Titcheners. For Helen, the question of her love for Rob and of his in return is precisely her problem. For Rob, the question remains as to how much Helen will allow herself to be owned by him, which is what he ultimately understands, uh, understands as, and substitutes for love. Distinctive piano chords tap to the beat of the song with a lazy drum groove helping to articulate Rob's logic.
0: And I do, don't I? When we're together, <laughs> don't I make you feel special? Be honest, I made you feel desired for the first time in your life. Yes. You wanted it because you wanted me. I know, I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> oh. um, Helen's stifled sobs indicate that she has once again yielded to him but the temptation to torture her further is too enticing for Rob. He actively draws our attention to the music for a second time just as the chorus kicks in and the complexities of the simple three note question of whether or not this is love are revealed. Within the longer narrative at play, the song pulls on an earlier time when Rob's coercive control became concretized. Is this love? was his musical accompaniment of choice to rape Helen back in August 2015. The simple act of referring to that night would surely be abuse enough, but the rhythmic organisation of Ray's cover is more rigid than Barley's lax reggae original, and the rigidity makes the central question undeniably prominent in the ears of the audience and the Titcheners alike. Immediately immediately afterwards, the syncopated rhythm behind emphasises his sense of ownership, and in the dialogue too, Rob's sonic terrorism of Helen is clear. He doesn't ask, do you remember this song? about the last time she heard it, indicating his control even over her listening choices.
0: Remember when you last heard this song? Um. It was the night I gave you our son. You remember now? Yes, I remember. Every night should be like that, don't you think? When you completely belong to me.
2: When Rob momentarily leaves the kitchen to deal with Henry, a melismatic flourish and a female chorus is opportunely timed with Helen's secret uh, call to Kirsty. When Rob momentarily leaves, oh, let me done that bit. Uh, the call is foiled by Rob's unexpected return, who directly instructs Helen to receive the call back from Kirsty and to feign that all is well. After Helen dutifully obeys, another tussle of power ensues. Bailey Ray's vocal embellishments offer an optimistic counterpoint to the rigidity of the piano, and the groove supports Helen's declaration of her intention to leave. But the sense of direction in Bailey Ray and Helen is alike is unclear.
0: is going to burn. Then let it, I don't care.
1: Yeah, you were right. That's not my hospital bag I'm leaving. (laughs) As with the transition into Is This Love, the introduction to the next song, Amy Mann's Wise Up, is distinctly audible in between the lines of dialogue as Rob thrusts a knife into Helen's hand and a similar emotional counterpoint is felt between the violent drama and the reflective piano introduction. Come on, put it in your hand. Do what Greg did. End it all now. Go on, I dare you! The intimate singer-songwriter voice of man that surely speak to Helen in this moment. Um, At a fundamental level, the listener's voice joins with man to spur Helen on to leave, even if we know she should have wised up some time ago. Additionally, there remains a struggle in this scene, not just between the two Titcheners, but between Helen and this inner voice. Much of the music is obscured by the violence of the action, but occasional flashes of the track peek through, as if to remind Helen of its emotional power. Come here, you rebel! Get your hands off him, touch him! (sighs) (sighs) However, if we continue to hear this instead as speaking for Rob, then we must hear it as also bringing his earlier insight to the fore. You got what you want, sings man, almost directly quoting Rob from the earlier argument over Winehouse. From a more richly intertextual perspective, the song is best known for its appearance in the film Magnolia, in a montage sequence that stitches together a number of ostensibly disparate narrative threads by having various characters sing along with Mann's lyrics. A genuine comparison between the two texts would be another mostly mad paper, but if we are able to bring this intertextual reference to the table as Archer's listeners, and perhaps the most striking comparison between The Archers and Magnolia is to be found in the similarity between Rob and the character of Frank Mackey. As a charismatic motivational speaker whose seminar series seduce and Destroy promises to teach men how to pick up women using subliminal messaging and hi- hypnotism and whose complex daddy issues have so blatantly shaped his angry, misogynistic adult self, Mackey is, all, is arguably a Los Angeles-sized version of Rob's Titchener, Rob Titchener. But the song's introduction, whilst very foregrounded in the mix of the scene, is by no means distinctive. The words are largely obscured by the violent action and the cinematic reference is rather obscure. It is at the end of this scene that the song speaks most clearly to the intricacies of the relationship. As the knife clatters to the floor, man's voice is fortuitously timed. It's not going to stop.
3: Helen! (laughs) Oh
0: no!
3: Mummy!
1: Take it home, Baker.
2: (laughs) In conclusion, these songs do indeed speak to the listeners, largely by way of their intertextual references to an off-air musical and social world. Much like film music, they also interact with the dialogue, such such that the songs seem to highlight the two parties' individual psychological machinations at various moments, again, for the benefit of the listener. But in that interaction, the songs also speak within the confines of Blossom Hill Cottage, between and on behalf of the Titcheners themselves. They occasionally spur Helen onto action, but not sufficiently clearly for her to leave without making a big mess in the kitchen. Because in the end, much of the music can be heard as one tool of Rob's battery of abusive tactics. His control of Helen is exerted sonically and musically as much as it is by any other means had he not turned that volume up he might not have ended
1: up spilling the custard um just thank you um just i've just been looking at some of the chat questions um and yes it was exactly the same uh track that uh made her run from lee uh and i think it was it was cranked up in the in the final outro just before um the end music uh, came mm-hmm. on as well so yeah there we go I'll stop sharing this screen now anyway
0: there we go thank um, you darlings that was
1: it was even better than th- this time around but god
2: isn't
0: it worse, I think, listening is what I, see. <laughs> I think I'd forgotten how awful it was you know Ooh. I know yeah. it's, it really is and you know we've sort of all that that collective sense that we were all shuddering along and it was so intense wasn't it and it, you know we were straight back there again so thank you very much for oh,
1: t- t- having us all again. Thanks for having us. Mm. Sorry, sorry it's such a grim start to the morning.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. No, but <laughs> I mean, it's true. That whole thing about it wasn't really until we got together in Lincoln that I started to not feel rubbish about it all since we had that, all those papers together. And mm. it did feel like like putting it to bed for me because it was, you know, you know, he might have been a gaslighting abuser, but we managed to pin it down and analyse it with our Big feminist brains, and yeah, we felt better after that. Um,
1: Christine says, "Is too <laughs> early for gin?" Christine says, "Is it too early for gin?" No. That's how it works.
0: Can you see the other questions in the chat? I think that was the only really direct one. Was about was that the one that was playing? Is it? Says, Does anybody else have anything they'd like to? Um. Oh, hang on, Olivia. What did the lovely producer say about the level of detail they'd planned? Oh, this is fun. So tell Emily, basically, you camped outside his house for like a month. Yeah, lived in his bin for a bit. Um, no, it was really nice,
2: really forthcoming. And he sort of said, oh, it was sort of by accident, but that on some level he had an awareness um, of what each song was about. So he was really interested about that, um, that connection. And actually, what he doesn't have control of so much is precisely when those two things are married together and so those things those sort of little details that we were talking about you know like little drum fills or little stutters or you know when they when the piano chords are hit those are just sort of happy accidents uh, well deeply unhappy accidents but you know what I mean um, yeah it was he, he was really helpful though and it was a really interesting conversation from his bin that I lived in
0: I did notice that Tim Stimpson also wrote the recent explosion at Grey Gables and all the, so he really is the kind of drama mm-hmm. I always notice when it's his week ever since you guys because he is yeah. the sort of really hard-hitting, quite, you know, the intense kind of storylines always, always come from his weeks. Um, I think he
2: went off to go and write for EastEnders and then came back or something. Really? I think
4: so, oh, yeah. Yeah, or I can it's imagine. It's always, always going like to him
0: sorry yeah.
1: for i just said he really knows how to write the, the big disasters yeah um and i think it's in those moments where where you really um appreciate the acting ability as well actually mm. because you know freddie for instance is an annoying little shit but he was marvelous in that episode yeah,
0: oh. that's true <laughs> so so uh, the explosion. Uh, so my, uh, so one question i wanted to throw out to people who haven't heard the paper before um, are you are you totally traumatized? Has it added something? Those of us that have seen it more than once are sort of prepared, but if you haven't, if you weren't part of the gang at Lincoln, this might be new to you. So, um, just any comment from people for whom that was the first time through? Oh, hang on.
1: Yes, totally traumatized.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs>
1: Yeah, there, there was also a question further up actually um, as yeah. to whether Emily and I had become um, somehow more immune to it the more we listened to it and analysed it. And I don't, I wouldn't want to speak to uh, speak for Emily. I guess, I mean, it's hard to put myself back in that moment. I think I, I probably did to some extent. Um, I'd actually not been a long-time Archer's listener when I first heard that episode. It was probably the first episode that I heard all the way through. And I just remember thinking, oh, my God, the arches is just broken um, in front of my very ears. Um, and then I went back and listened to the whole lead-up to the thing. So I did, like, three years of binge listening in a very short period of time in order to be able to write the paper, um, including the earlier rape uh, scene and everything. Um, I think I... I did feel like there were sounds that I was listening to, uh, but every now and again, the trauma would kind of peek through, right? That, that was my experience of it. Definitely. It it didn't completely yeah. immunize me to it, but I did hear it as sounds rather than content after a while. But today, yeah, I, mean, like, yeah.
2: I remember um, sitting with a, uh, a spreadsheet and headphones on and like, Mapping out like where the where the sounds were coming from and where what was moving where and and where that hit with the music and like the level of geekery I just was astounding, and in that way you don't you don't really listen to what's happening anymore and I think you do get desensitized to it but I I do remember like Frère and I sitting and writing bits of it together or stitching bits that we'd written together and then we go oh god this is horrible and those moments that I think you you feel I really felt it then. So I think you feel it more with other people. Um, yeah,
4: it yeah. quite a well, process.
0: Which in and of itself speaks to our, our our reason for getting together on Zoom today. I love that sentence, Emily. You feel it more with other people I think that's been our um our experience so sure. I think it was after Lincoln we instanced the live listen so the last few conferences we've listened to the omnibus and tweeted along and like
4: yeah
0: and it totally totally transforms your listening experience not just I'm having right. people snorting with laughter around you because we've already you know had already heard the week normally but the live listen There is, there is really something in it is how, but I suppose that would be the same, like a a concert audience, right? Rather than, you know, even if you're a virtuoso in your own bedroom, there is something about you hear things differently
1: publicly and with other people, don't you? Yeah, Yeah, for sure, for sure, yeah. I think the in terms of the the oral geekery, just to go back to Emily's thing about being such listening nerds, um, there was, there's a moment when he kind of bends down to, to see what's in the oven um and you can almost hear him like bending down but there's no and it's just like it's something about the placement of the microphone or something and i don't know how to do it but you can hear the guy just leaning down to see what's in the oven and i don't you know it it really it's that level of detail that you can get Mm. to if you um if you focus on it anyway Mm. well
4: um, some people um so when we say lincoln that our second conference was in lincoln which is when this paper was given and we had a whole big section of papers talking about the Helen and Rob storyline because it was it, it, the stabbing had obviously happened but it was still very present at that time so I'm um, asked if there's a video of that presentation and there is I've just posted the link into the chat now and so that's that's half of that session um, and you'll see um, you'll be able to see the whole lot there but this soundtrack to the stabbing is in that one as well and videos for all of the conferences um, if you just put academic artists YouTube they will all come up And then on the academicarchers.net website, there's a page there for each of the conferences, and there's links out to the videos on those pages there as well. But uh, Academic Archers YouTube usually brings um, all of those videos up there as well. So
0: that link is in there now too. Thank you for asking that, Shirley. It's a good point. So um, we're at we're at eleven thirty four. So if we want to give us enough space for Peter, we could round it up unless there's anything else that you would like to say to your fan base who are loving your work. I think if you read the chat, that's about the best peer review you're ever going to get. So put that in your impact statement and smoke it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, just lovely to see you ladies. Missed you. Oh, missed miss you, you too. too. <laughs> Thanks
4: right. for having me. Thank that you. That was amazing. Thank you oh, yeah. very, very much. You were the, you were the paper that everybody said that one we want to hear that one so it's fantastic to start off with you brilliant yes. and it's it really probably one of our most technologically challenging papers so we've got that out of the way it's <laughs> <That's> fine <laughs> I didn't think that actually
0: <laughs> right um, now I've got my kind words for Peter now that we find them hang on hang on can you switch up switch over to, to bring Peter up in and unmute him so yeah, Peter's Hello. unmuted, you are
3: on. <gasps> Hello, Peter. Hello.
0: <laughs> right. So for those of you who don't know, Peter, Dr. Peter Matthews, you aren't a reader are you, Peter?
3: No, just a senior lecturer. <laughs> <laughs> um, <seen>
0: <laughs> it was our original third musketeer. It was Dr. Peter Matthews who introduced Cara and Nicola on Twitter as we fulminated about community consultation for Route B. His paper on Linda Snell at the first Academic Archers Conference at the University of Liverpool in London in Finsbury Square led to many reappraisals of the role of La Snell in the village. Peter's lovely mum is an academic archer and came to our speaking event at Ilkley Literature Festival last year. Peter's Linda paper is in the first book of Conference Proceedings, The Archers in Fact and Fiction, Academic Analyses of Life in Rural Borsetshire, which was published by Peter Lang in 2016. And Peter provided excellent editorial services for that first book. So we didn't have prizes that first year because like with so many of the things that have become the way we do things, we just added things as in as we went along. But if we had had one, you would definitely have got one, Peter. Over to you for Linda Snell, archetypal urban warrior, a uh, uh, middle class warrior, <laughs> urban warrior.
3: Thank you very much. And I've I've used the um, the Zoom background tool to have my fantastic image of um Linda behind me. And um, just to answer your question, um, Nicola, about were you tra- traumatized listening to the um, Robin Helen episode again? Um, yes, I was. It was I <laughs> was the first time I'd listened to it since it was broadcast, and I it just it was. <laughs> How the reaction was um yeah weird um we it was broadcast on a Sunday night, and usually we're out, so I didn't actually hear it being broadcast live. We listened to it when we came in uh, and we just sat both me and my husband sat on the sofa, sort of clenched like like watching the t v <laughs> listening to it, and at the end, I was just shaking and in tears <laughs> and my husband so very concerned he said, peter are you are you okay? Is there something you need to tell me? <laughs> <laughs> no, my dad was not an abuser. <laughs> like, <it's laughs>
0: but I think that's so. I, am I think. Am I unmuted? Because this is something that we've we've talked about loads, particularly when we've been out gigging for the custard book. Is that if you haven't had somebody like that in your life, and thank God many of us haven't, you've never heard first person speech in your ear yeah. with all that content and all that. You know those we had one woman Cara and I when we were in when we came up to iWrite in Glasgow and she said I sat down my my teenage daughters and I made them listen and I said if you hear this yeah. you leave and yeah, you yeah. know anyway sorry yes anyway,
3: that's, that's onwards with my paper so it is absolutely brilliant to be back and um the um the issue I have had is as an academic I've always been teaching every time um, the, you do the Arches um, academic conferences I've not been able to make it back since the first one which is a real shame because I would have loved I would love to go back and I love hearing about how amazing it's all happened since but onwards with my um, paper on um, Linda Snell the um, the class warrior for some reason my oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, so this paper was back in the day, I don't know if you all remember of the um, Sa- Save the Vale Environment and Route B, and um, it was based on some research that I'd done with a colleague at the um, University of Glasgow and at Hastings on middle-class community activism. So uh, so we'd done a review of literature on middle-class community activism, and through this uh, we'd found that there were four um, key ways by which the middle classes have um, influence on local policymaking in their area so we, we call these four theories and here, is, here are them and I'll just sort of quickly run through them so the first one is I'll stand as the parish council chair so that's the, um, the fact that middle classes in our uh, review of the evidence are much more likely to join groups and be influential in groups but most importantly these are groups that matter these are the groups that the um, government listens to particularly the local states listen to Secondly, um, I'll write to my um, counsellor and complain, this is just the fact that um, middle class people are much more likely to uh, communicate with the local state and um, complain about things or ask for things than other people. Third one is, I'll just phone our doctor. And this is the fact that the middle classes have cultural capital because they are middle-class professionals. Many of them work in the public sector themselves. And so they can have very productive conversations with uh, public sector professionals to get what they want. And that's what confers advantage on them. And finally, uh, um, the final pathway we found by which middle classes have a lot of um, influence is I'll vote for them. And that this is the fact that um, in because middle-class um, service users engage more with services but also vote more <laughs> they're much more likely to vote upon um, uh, the um, needs of the middle classes are normalized within policy and practice and actually the policy priorities of political parties favor the middle-class interests so they're the f- the, the four um, pathways we found by which the middle classes have um, influence so now I'll just go through how um, I thought, I believe um, Linda Snell embodies these as a stereotypical um, middle-class warrior. <clears throat> so in terms of the, um, the social, um, uh, the, the first pathway I'll stand as parish council chair, Linda obviously was a one-time parish councillor and one-time chair of the Ambridge um, parish um, council, so she has that social capital already, um, she's been on the village hall committee, and now as, when I did this paper she was leading the, the SAVE campaign. And also, though, what was quite interesting about Linda is that she's constantly works to develop this social capital. And it's really, she's really interesting, coming back to this paper, and I'll reflect on this more at the end, how much Linda's life has changed over the last few years. Um, but, but also in the, so go back to the slide, in terms of her annual Christmas show, When She Still Did It, that was real active work that Linda was doing to develop social capital. So making friendships with people in, low, in the... Um, the land outside Ambridge, bringing them into the um, the show and um, developing these strong relationships with other people in Ambridge that enabled her to have this social capital to get things done through these wider political and policy networks, such as the Parish Council. Moving on to, I'll write to my councillor and complain. Well, um, T- the, uh, the Root B story was a classic on this, Of um, and, but then also through a random collection of Archer's books that my mum's got me through the years. I also um, uh, uh, learnt about some of the history of uh, Linda's activism within Dorsetshire uh, before I started listening to the Archer's. Um, I think the, the key thing here is that Linda knows how to have influence, and she goes out of her way to learn about things, to have influence, she doesn't just rage pointlessly, she finds out what she should be angry about, and is very effective at directing that to get what she wants. So in terms of planning, um, back in the day, um, she got in contact with the Borsuchia Environment Trust and got a uh, SSSI designation to protect a hedge that the Grundys wanted to get rid of. Um, She was um, particularly aggrieved about Susan Carter's Neo-Georgian front door. I'll come back to that in a bit. And then um, in the back when Rob was still the manager of Barrow Farm, um, she um, used the public health arguments around um, the um, possible pollution from Barrow Farm to try and object against that. So she wasn't just saying, oh, I I, I object is entirely out of hand. She um, used her knowledge, used her uh, or of wider issues to object to that on specific public health grounds. In terms of, I'll just phone our doctor, and that those links to cultural capital—they um, saved the unveil environment campaign was a classic case of this. Um, there, was the, she had links to environmental consultant there that she could draw on to um, uh, to make the to uh, make the case to, to against route B i can't actually remember what the bullet point about casting um is all about <laughs> to be honest but also famously um she organized the fourth plinth um for uh ambridge so that really demonstrates her cultural capital as a middle-class person who is really um associated with uh, the arts but also you also see that um uh demonstration of her cultural capital in how she um Views herself in Ambridge. And this is a, a, a quote from a, a book by Linda Snell of The Heritage of Ambridge, um, <clears throat> where she says, I know that Susan regards me as something of a, of a role model ever since the day I offered her a, a, a glass of sherry. So she's, in this quote, she's epitomising this sort of middle class person that people look up to and, um, and, and, if they want to aspire to the to this more middle class role, and actually on this, I think it's very telling that um, since I wrote this paper, um, Susan and when um, oh god name blank Susan's husband um, got the job as the manager at uh, Barrow Farm, mm-hmm. and kind of and how she was aspiring to a bit of a, 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 a be better in the world, and at that dinner party when um, she went round when they went round to um, Brian and Jennifer's as well, and this kind of um, really shows that sort of susan's desperate to get this cultural capital um that linda already has um in terms of our vote for them oh yes that's just uh, my random photo of um good old um oh what was his name <laughs> the um he was the manager who um ian had the affair with oh, yeah, um, yeah. charlie thomas charlie thomas yes the, the <laughs> my favourite charlie, charlie thomas i have many sexual fantasies about him moving swiftly on um <laughs> so um in terms of the, um, our, uh, the a broader uh, assessment thereof, um, Linda Snell, um, so she, uh, she moved to um, Ambridge in 1986, and she's a classic case of what Michael Savage refers to as elective belonging. So her and, ah, um, uh, oh God, I'm having complete name blanks here. Um, the name of her husband um uh, linda and robert um they have this sort of elected belonging as middle middle class people they've chosen to move to this rural idyll this rural life that they want and they're attempting to shape that rural idyll um uh, in their in their lives in ambridge so again as i referred to earlier um the, uh, um, uh, Linda's issues with is Susan Carter's front door as a quote here from the book I reluct- reluctantly draw your attention to Susan Carter's front door see what I mean so here you really see Linda trying to shape Ambridge into this rural idyll that her and Robert have elected to belong to and there's the book itself Linda Snell's Heritage of Ambridge um, but I wanted to so I'm, I'm really 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 pleased that um Cara and Nicola organised this, and as soon as I got the email, I jumped on it because I was really, really keen to get back involved. And because over the last few weeks with the horrible accident that happened to Linda, or is it an accident? Um, I've really sort of been thinking a lot about this and about um, Linda more generally. And when I first presented this paper at the first conference, um, at the end of it, Nicola asked me, do I like Linda? And at the time, I said, no, I didn't. And everybody was a bit in the audience was a bit shocked. And I remember Nicola saying, um, oh, actually, I do. I think she's, she's got um, uh, people's best interests at heart. And so I went away from that thinking, actually, no, I still don't like Linda. I think my, my analysis shows that she's um, entirely self-interested. She's just sort of a middle class and she's acting in this very middle class way to get what she wants. And I, I don't actually have that much um, time for her. But as time went on, and I wrote the book chapter that um, came out in the first book and sort of listened to Linda a bit more carefully and kind of reflected on on her role, I actually, I've learned to love Lindy, um, not quite so much as Robert, but I'm getting there. Um, famously, of course, um, in the um, Corbinite revolution that swept Ambridge, Um, She got her wings clipped in the parish council elections. And I think it was and that was quite nice that, that that happened and that there's a bit more of a shifting of the uh, political scene in Ambridge. But then also with the debates around the be at Ambridge, though, you still see a bit of that kind of um, attempt by Linda to really shape this rural idyll that she's elected to belong to in her own image. Um, although I think most of us would agree that the be at Ambridge was a rather foolish move to make. But it was really struck me and I think and I say I was really glad to um, go back to this paper when um, I've actually um, I've still not listened to the episode where um, the explosion happened because I say I don't listen to the um, Sunday night episodes live with the broadcast and I managed to miss that bit of the um, omnibus um, but when um, Linda has been in hospital over the last is it two weeks I've lost all sense of time during this lockdown period um, I have found myself in tears listening to the radio and it has really demonstrated to me that I have learnt to love Linda and since writing this paper as her character as her life in Ambridge has changed as she's um, pulled back from doing the Christmas show as um, she's kind of not been involved in the parish council it's just been really delightful to see her character change and that ends my paper so thank you very much i'll now see what hell awaits for me in my um uh, the uh, comment
4: <laughs> no hell at all but um one quite one, one so Catherine pointed this out and I, I picked this up as well when it came on that in one of the recent episodes um, O'Carroll was playing in the background at the tea room I think it was and that was a real mm. that was a really emotional moment when they were talking about that and we didn't know at that point as I if I remember the timing rightly whether Linda was going to survive or not and then there's O'Carroll playing in the background so I went straight to Ambridge FM thinking on that one sure. and it was just it was amazing to
0: hear that completely um, So go on. Oh, I, I unmuted myself because I'm such a deviant Um, <laughs> I would I mean in terms of papers that have followed this one Peter there have been quite a lot so partly inspired by you I did one for gossip about women's work and the role of women in the non-home and non-work spheres in Ambridge and then this year in Reading we had both Tim Versalotti and Amy, is it Saunders Amy, both of whom who wrote about civil society matters referring back in terms of all the kind of complex motivations both internal and extrinsic for the kind of cultural capital marshalling that you Described so well in your paper. I just wonder if since Amy and um, and Tim are on the line if you would like to unmute yourselves and 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 refer to this early paper from Peter because I know that I don't think either of you have seen it before. So Amy is unmuted
4: if there's anything to add and Tim as well this is the first time
0: actually that i had um heard this one peter and but actually had my mind blown when nicola when you you were talking with your um different degrees of class that was being represented in ambridge so uh, i i'm really keen on this subject i'm really looking forward to hearing more on on class and analysis in in uh Average. so yeah I'm very pleased
4: to get to hear the original one so well done you Peter for sparking this all off.
3: Thank, thank you very much I think just picking up on um Nicola's point um it's actually so um I've got this interest in sort of middle class activism but generally um what I refer to is kind of the um citizen-led contact with the local state so I'm actually doing a project now that's kind of that's came out of this earlier work on looking at the um the de- data of people who contact a local council in Scotland, and to pick up on your point in about um, uh, gender, Nicola, it's really interesting. From that, that w- women do the vast, like the vast majority of contacting. So, sixty percent of reports to this this local council in terms of street cleaning and cutting um, shrubs, things like that, uh, come from women, and but then contrary to our analysis, and this actually needs some more work in our um, academic research, these women, actually, women from deprived neighbourhoods. So I think, um, I know Nicola, you've got a similar background to me in doing research on regeneration. And that doesn't surprise me that actually it's um, the women in the deprived neighbourhoods are doing a lot of this not sort of domestic work outside the home of keeping the neighbourhood going. And some of these are, we've termed them super reporters. They're doing... Um, We've so got ten years of data, and like the, the um, biggest reporter has done over 160 reports to the local council in that ten years, and that's a woman from a deprived neighbourhood. So it really <laughs> goes to show is that that's a hell of a lot of work they're doing. And I think um, going back to my my paper, I think the um, Linda does embody that as well. And I think it's one of the reasons why I've come to love her is that she's doing that gendered work in Ambridge to keep the local community going, and that's really important. I think a lot of um, that work wouldn't happen if she wasn't fulfilling that role.
4: It makes me think as well about when we had Charlotte come in and talk about Susan, and that was quite a revolutionary paper, I think, for a lot of people. So all those things that we found really annoying about Susan Charlotte, because she's played her for so, so long, has this deep love for her and totally reframed how everybody thought about Susan. There's a lot of sympathy there. And When you were saying then about women doing work outside the home, Susan, in her own way, I think does a lot to maintain the village and to keep it going. And a lot of social and material things in the village as well. I had a question from Annie saying, uh, there's two questions from Annie. Um, Is it all menopausal women that complain?" And is Joy a working class Linda? And some people have wondered whether Joy has been brought in to be the new Linda.
3: I can't say about the menopausal women. Unfortunately, in our data, we don't have the age. (laughs) I'll leave you to speculate on that.
0: (laughs) Maybe we can do some anecdotal data collection
3: on that one. Um, On Joy, um, I, I think what I'm hearing there is the same sort of patterns of elected belonging. Of she, she aspired to a particular life, rural lifestyle. In and I, I thought they were going to play on it more. Kind of very early on, um, when she was, com- I can't, she was complaining about something in that was happening in uh, Bridge Farm, and um, and I thought she was going to turn into very much the Uber Linda of trying to turn the countryside into what she imagined it to be. But actually, I think uh, as um, it rolls forward i i as her character developed i don't think she's becoming a linda i actually just seen one of the um comments um i i actually got really really angry about some of the online reaction to joy say being really annoyed by her because actually i see a lot of class-based bullying in some of those comments that i just think it's written and uh, the right the writers i was actually sorry, I'm breaking the fourth wall and pretending that the arch isn't real. Um, the way the archers were portraying Joy at the start, I thought was bullying. It was, you know, make, they were making her a horrible person. And she isn't. I'm sorry, nobody is innately horrible in that way. Well, some people are, Rob Wars. Um, I don't think Joy is. I, I was actually quite angry that um, she was uh, being portrayed in that way and also being talked about in that way because nobody deserves to be talked about in that way, even if they are a fictional character. <laughs>
4: I agree. I agree. Um, there's been a request for the Charlotte Susan paper as well from Jim and Kate, and we'll see what we can do on that one. It'd be amazing to have the person who delivered it deliver that paper again. Yeah, if not, I mean, we will do it. We will just watch the video online. Yeah. Uh, but we'll see what we can do on that. And Jim and Kate also a uh, reminder of the fourth plinth stories. That's when, the, if I remember rightly, and this is kind of my area working in the arts, when they had the fourth plinth. Um, in Trafalgar Square and there's that nationwide call as to what would go on it. Linda was rallying around that call. Is that right? Do I remember that? actually yes, I, yeah yeah it, it was a long, very, very long time
3: ago for her to get people to volunteer for it and it was looking like it would just be her stuck up there for a week but then eventually, <laughs> i think she did eventually manage to get enough volunteers <laughs> uh, <was> it's <laughs> just it was, it was a misstep by the bbc though because they should have actually got <laughs> the art the art i know it would have oh I
4: my, know, uh, been amazing uh, <laughs> Thank you for Lawred for um, posting up another of the links to some of the YouTube uh, uh, bids as well. Um, Just going through the questions now. Yes, on the class bullying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Question about how many people are knitting. I can see four or five of you that are knitting. (laughs) And I don't want to cast aspersions on what anybody else might be doing where I can't see their hands. Uh, But I I think they're knitting. Um. (laughs) Thank you, Trisha. (laughs) What about Hannah's attacks on Neil and Emma about misusing their powers as local councillors to get Emma as a working-class woman a house? And I think there's a couple of others that can talk to that as well, actually, in this group. So, Victor yeah, and uh, Peter and some, some others too that can probably have some comment on that.
3: Yeah, I, I, I found that the whole, um, the new Bridge Farm um, Storyline, really interesting. Actually, I I think the um, writers nicked that idea from my book chapter, because in the book chapter, I make the point that actually, you can joke about um, Linda's middle class activism, but the evidence shows that when this is really effective, one of the things it stops happening is the building of affordable housing in the countryside. And that leads to really bad problems of rural homelessness that we see in rural poverty. So it is we can joke about it, but it has to have a really negative impact in that class-based um, self-interest was something I was trying to pick out on the, the chapter. But it was interesting how, um, if I remember rightly, got it with years ago. Um, Linda did was originally a bit aggrieved about the bridge farm um, development, but then kind of didn't. a full-on opposition to it and actually the the writers pulled out by using emma wanting one of the affordable houses in the development they pulled out that element of this is where you see socio-economic class at war in rural areas when you get um new housing developments and they used emma's role there quite well um i think the um the bit with Hannah, I just, I, I just found that really odd. I just kind of, it was there just to push the storyline on and make Hannah seem a bit more, uh, sort of, unpleasant character, really. Because it's, um, yeah, it's. I, I think in in reality though, um, one of one of the Emma probably wouldn't have got that home <laughs> in reality because the um, local um, housing um, authority would be. Um, Felpersham District Council and the housing list would be for all of Felpersham. Mm. So that's one of the issues is that, that, that the what's known as exception housing in the countryside, it's allowed to be built by local parish councillors because they think it's going to have local um, families move into it, but local means local to local authority area. And so a uh, um, uh, family like um, Emma's would have been right down on the housing priority list and probably would have got nowhere, wouldn't have got a look in there. So yeah. they were very, very lucky to get that.
4: Yeah.
0: So, uh, so I just unmuted myself. <laughs> so um, really, really just want to echo the points about neighbourhood activism and regeneration. And I had, it's old data now, but there was a sense that you know, particularly when there were regeneration schemes which were well financed. It was very much kind of who wants to help sort out the neighborhood, neighborhood forum in the village hall and, or in the, in the sports hall or whatever. And they were predominantly female neighborhood activists in that sort of early period, sort of, you know, ni- late 90s. But what was observed then was a kind of professionalization of that kind of user voice. And as it went on, when it was kind of community reps it became it had more of that feeling about being a tenant rep in a housing association and that became more male and that was work that I did you know a million years ago but that um that point as we all know the planning system as you just said Peter is a is a very intriguing space for um animating both gender and class and the um the sort of um uh, yeah, yeah sort of weaponizing knowledge of certain types uh, particularly referring to when you know remember your brilliant story about one regenerated set of flats then started to complain about the next one getting done and that notion that you know this whole thing about neighborhood change and those neighborhood change processes who gets to say in what ways neighborhoods change is still kind of such a fundamentally interesting point and on, on joy I wonder you see because I think Linda I think it was about the time of your paper that I started to sort of feel even fonder of her and I think that, that I know people always howl when characters are kind of people say oh the real Linda would never da but I think she has been quite carefully sort of mellowed actually over the years into a more um, I mean yeah all that stuff about you know, going on about somebody's chavy front door is just horrid. I don't think she would do that kind of stuff now. So whether, you know, I think she's sort of matured into a more um, more acceptable kind of community-spirited person rather than a kind of, you know, policer of, of aesthetics and kind of taste and things, which, yeah, is, isn't is a good look for anybody.
3: Actually interesting. In the um, comments, there's a um, uh, point about if you, um, Ambridge 50 years ago was practically feudal. actually that'd be a a project for somebody else to do possibly as a paper is to sort of look at class relations over time in ambridge and see how they've reflected how class relations and gender relations have changed in rural england and and how accurate it has been as a portrayal of those Uh, yeah that 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 kind of rings true that kind of uh, um it was back in the 50 years ago, it was feudal, people knew their place, and that was reflected in the storylines, whereas like Linda moving in in the 1980s, was kind of the um, yuppification and gentrification of the countryside in the 1980s, and those urban incomers, whereas now, as the the point's being made, that Joy and Hannah are now uh, um, disrupting things in a way that would be expected in the 2020s.
4: Have you just nominated yourself to write that paper, Peter? <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> not looking, at the, <laughs> looking at the chat, it's, it's so interesting. Linda just completely divides people. Yeah. And some people are saying that like, I've got quite a lot of kind. you know, Linda's been quite kind to some of the young people in the village and quite supportive of them. And saying that she's definitely mellowed, have been on quite a journey, but then others going, No, she's boring, Olivia, boring and annoying. <laughs> uh, <laughs> she really, There's a real divide divide still with Linda, regardless of how she is at the moment. And there's a lot of people also mentioning that the script writers must listen to all of the Archer's chats and base their uh, the, you know, the forward rest- storylines on that, which of course they must do. At their t- how can they not? <laughs> 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 so we are at uh, five minutes past twelve. There's a lot um, of uh, chat on the zoom. so um, on the in the chat bit so much it's really. Amazing, and thank you for filling into all of that. There's a lot to keep up with. I might unmute you all now because I don't want you to be sat there in silence um, and maybe just tra- see how we can do a big chat with now 78 people in the room at once. It might go you got
3: to do the raise hand thing on. We can do this.
4: We can raise our hands. We can do
3: that. Oh no, in Zoom, darling, there is a thing in Zoom where you can raise your hand to speak.
4: Because the open.
0: <laughs> Mute everyone now.
3: Mute everyone.
4: <laughs> or what we could do is, like, fix is to do to do a dumpty dum and to send that into to uh, in Field and it will be. T- I know if we have a seat, everybody will start at a different time. It could be marvellous. I don't it's not itchy, a thing, isn't
3: it? <laughs> I think you might have to mute Deborah. Kara. <laughs> <laughs> <The> <right? laughs> oh. So, shall so
4: we do it? Shall we try <laughs> it yeah, down yeah. in three and everybody sings the dumb line? <laughs> if everybody takes <laughs> their blick off, then we use it. I think I'm not seeing any. do it, do it, do it. you don't have to join. I mean, I I have an awful singing voice, so I won't be joining in. But I think this is the majority of you. <laughs> Never said it mattered whether we could sing. <laughs> right. So I'm going to count down to three, and on three, off you go. So one, two, three. <laughs> uh, next time we need
1: a conductor didam <laughs> uh, 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 <laughs> no, didam
0: <laughs>
4: that. was just beautiful <laughs> in the most bizarre chorus way. <laughs> when
1: there's a when there's a move to gather the highlights of these unusual times, I
2: fully
0: expect that to be <laughs> the top.
2: Ultimately, <laughs> no finally lost it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the end of week one. That's
2: like
4: it my eye. That's so lovely. <laughs> 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 Nicola, do you have anything else to add before we start to begin to sign off?
2: Nicola's gone. That's Nicola. it.
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sorry, I was I was pointing for you to unmute me. Um, but that was—it seems almost embarrassing to have that close textual analysis of music and then and then produce that as a as the at the end. But, <laughs> <laughs> it's been amazing to see everybody. It's so lovely seeing you all flashing up. I'm quite emotional. So um, back to the group. Let's um, let's have a let's have a blather on there. I think it's gonna be easier than this. But stay safe, everybody. Yeah. 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 So, so there are
4: two. They're coming up Thank on you, the Thank you, everyone. There's definitely a need. There's definitely interest in more about the fourth plinth and who sat on what, where, and when. That's come up as a really hot topic. Okay. Um, And then next week we'll have Abby Passington talking about Rob and Othello. It has a day doing these amazing Archers and the Simpsons. And we're going to talk about Ambridge and Insurgency because I think that would be a really interesting one to talk about during lockdown. So <laughs> <There's> some amazing <laughs> papers yeah, again next week. Thank you everybody. Thank you so much. See you very soon. Thank you everybody. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.